Hey y'all, welcome back to the Black Run It Back podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Brie Color, and my other co-host, Patrick, are you there? I'm here, how are you? I am good, listen, I am ready to get into it, so let's go. I've been ready. Okay. I stay stay ready. Okay. (laughs) Let's go. Okay, Um, a great movie today. Uh, I'm excited about the conversation. I am so excited. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited about the conversation. This should be good. Um, should be interesting. I, I, <laughs> this movie's, this movie this is, is full of all kind of complications. One of my favorites. <laughs> so I'm excited about it. Um, so what's today's movie? It's life. Life, 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 life. Listen, yes. You gotta sing the song when you talk about the movie. It's just, the movie's everything. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the music. Um, great soundtrack, so um, we'll, we'll talk about the music a little later. But uh, yeah, this is the second time Eddie shows up on on the pod. Yeah, um, we really could dedicate uh, an entire like quarter of Eddie movies. Of Eddie course we should. But, Absolutely. You know, we won't, but we could. Absolutely. Um, this is the second, and hopefully not the last, uh, posse movie Eddie made, right? Because Harlem Nights was a gathering of some of the best comics, iconic comics of the the eighties, and mm-hmm. this movie he assembles uh, some of the emerging comics. Some were established by this time, but some emerging comics that would do great work in the 90s and 2000 because this is early Anthony Anderson. So, Listen, um, Anthony was thick in this movie. It was. Big Anthony. I said, oh! <laughs> <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> Pre-diabetic Anthony. Uh, yeah, young Anthony. So, um, yeah, and they were, a lot of them will go on to become iconic. Uh, yeah. Icons in their yeah. own right. And so... Um, Shout out to Eddie who just keeps black people working. And um, again, this is another predominantly black film. Um, yeah. And um, I don't think we we talk enough about how radical and how um, for the people Eddie has been. Yeah. Um, and so I, I appreciate that. So life here we, we you know we're, we're here uh, running back this movie. Um, on your, did you rewatch it? Of course. Okay. I, I mean, so. That's the assignment. <laughs> yeah. Well. Right. Well. I mean, if you had seen it before, maybe you didn't have to watch it. If no. You kinda no, I actually kind of like, rewatch all of our movies, even if I've seen them a million times. I rewatch it because I'm looking at it from a different lens. So. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, what do you think? Does it hold up? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I'm gonna say this: this movie gets better with time. Mm-hmm. It gets better with time. Like every, I'm I'm laughing, trying to keep from laughing. Watch uh, talking about this, but literally every time I watch it, I I see something, I hear something, the little nuances, the little one liners, the little you know off script moments that just make this movie what it is. Mm-hmm. So if anything, it's not only you know stood the test of time, but it's literally gotten better for me. Yeah, um, it holds up in it in its artistic 
um, for its artistic value. I, I think it's one of the most underrated Eddie movies. Like, I don't know why this isn't talked about as one of his best uh, movies. Mm, okay. uh, I think we should. Um, and yet, you know, it, it it's a very complicated movie for me. And we'll talk about, about why, but absolutely, I think the comedy holds up. I think that's the kind of enduring spirit of it. Um, it it holds up and so it was a it was it yeah it's it's still it's still great so let's do some logistics mm-hmm. um it was released april 16th 1999 uh it was produced by eddie murphy and brian grazer and i want um and this was a story by eddie eddie pitched this um, mm. this was something um, that he wanted to do and at this time in his career and and probably still now can go to any studio and be like, yeah, I want to make this movie. And for the most part, I think, even to this day, like, he could get a, a film done. He could get it greenlit. Oh, absolutely. Um, and this was one of his, um, one of his movies he pitched and wanted to get this done. The budget was um, $80 million. Um, Makes sense. And it grossed uh, seventy-three million dollars, and so I just don't understand. I mean, ugh. yeah. So the the studio, you know, took a loss on this one. Um, number one movie of that year, nineteen ninety-nine, was Star Wars: The Phantom Menace that that brought in four hundred and thirty million. Listen, um, we not we you, you you can't certain things you just can't go against. No, I mean. <laughs> yeah. Movies. Yeah. Yeah. Says George Lucas got my money that year for that. Listen. So it was Phantom Menace. What you supposed to do? Um, um, and so that was the number one movie of that year. Life was the number thirty-three um, mm. movie of that year. And so, um, yeah, I, I don't know why this underperformed the way it did. I don't know, like, where was black people at? Was we distracted by Y2K? What, or, what was like, happening? what was... <laughs> For real. Like, and Y2K could be a good reason, right? Because when you yeah. think about it, the fact that not only is it an Eddie movie, it's an Eddie and a Martin movie. Like, come on, y'all. Did, yeah, yeah. Come and on, this y'all. is their second, this is their second movie. Yeah. This is their second time on film, and so I would have thought, we would have been rushing to, to you know, get to see Eddie yeah. and and um, Martin again. It was directed by Ted DeMay, um, and it was produced by Imagine Entertainment. Um, it's noteworthy because, and and I'm sure we'll talk about this as we get into the story, is that it was nominated for an Oscar for a makeup design. Mm. Um, Okay. And so when you think about it, be like, yeah, right? Like, yeah. Um, The transformations that happened during this movie, um, it felt so natural. And of course the makeup didn't seem um, like it was just thrown together. They were very intentional, you know, about aging them. Even when they were seniors, they aged them, um, which was, it's unique to see that on on film, and so. Um, I think Eddie does a good job of doing that in his films. Like when you think about even like the Nutty Professor, 
the way that makeup is incorporated into the characters and bringing them to life. Like, he does a really good job. But this is probably, like you said, the whole aging and being just intentional in the way that they even had them looking as 90-year-old men was spot on. And this is going to be Eddie's wheelhouse, right? Like, he's going to make up in his movies from Coming to America to The Nutty Professors to... Yeah. Um, to all alike, well, and there were three Nutty Professors. So whenever Eddie wants to get creative in a film and it needs makeup, like he's just going to nail it. Um, yeah, Norbit. So, yeah. 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 <laughs> so this is Eddie's thing. Um, and so, yeah, it got an Oscar nom for that. Um, so let's talk about the story, storyline. Um, In the mid-1990s, two inmates buried the burned bodies of two lifers at Mississippi's infamous Parchment Farm as a third old-timer relates their story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, They served 65 years for a murder they did not commit, framed by a local sheriff while buying moonshine whiskey for a Manhattan club owner to whom they owed money. Flashbacks depicts how the odd couple was thrown together, Ray as a fast-talking con man and Claude as a serious man about to start work as a bank teller. The loss of Ray's watch, sterling silver, from his daddy. The murder and trial. There was no trial, but okay. And the hardships of the parchment uh, State Farm and the love-hate relationship between Claude and Ray as they spend 65 years bickering and looking for a way to escape. So this cast um, probably could not afford this cast today. Um, just a a who's who of black black excellence. Just um, some wonderful, wonderful uh, people who make up this class. Cast, of course, is starring Eddie Murphy and Martin Lawrence as Ray and Claude. Uh, and then we have the late great Bernie Mac, Chicago's finest, um, the one and only, the Kang. One of the Kangs um, is in the movie. Um, Miguel Nunez Jr., um, which is, if there was ever anyone who has ever won a C-list of actors in, in in black black Hollywood, he has been there for the last 45 years. Uh, except for Juana Man, like that was his shining moment that he had, so shout out to him. Um, Clarence Williams III as Winston Hancock. He was a great actor and uh, actually played Prince's father in Purple Rain. So there's there's that. Guy Tory is in here. Bokeem Woodbine as Can't Get Right. Um, Anthony Anderson. Uh, Sanaa Lathan. I forgot she, she popped up in here and was giving us all the things that she gives us. Uh, heavy D. Oh my goodness gracious. It was mm, mm, mm. heavy. Um, gosh, I miss him. Heavy D was in it. Lisa Nicole Carson uh, before um, her um, situations where she moved away from, from acting uh, a bit. And um, along with so many other people, uh, but the last notable one I think is the late great Rick James mm-hmm. as Spanky. God bless him. Um, he looked healthy. 
he looked, you know, except for the cane, he had had a stroke. Um, and so the cane was not just a prop. Like he was on the cane, but um, at that time. But he looked healthy. Um, you know, he probably, at that day of shooting, had, you know, just enough cocaine to get through the day. Oh, wow. And to, to get through to get through a good day of work. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> Shout out to the to the super freak because you know he brought it. He had it on him. Uh, he's gonna bring it for everybody. So <laughs> a little sunshine, a little fun. Yeah, everybody. you know, just a little little energy drink. You know, a little, little pep. You know, to get through the day. So God bless. Um. Okay. So let's let's do this historical settings. What is the the framework of this this movie? It, it happens. Um, in the 1920s, 1930s, um, which is, you had two things colliding at this time. You had um, Prohibition, uh, and you also had the emergence of the Harlem Renaissance. And so this movie uh, makes reference to New York and Harlem. And when we talk about later, the Boom Boom Room and all those things in the Cotton Club, um, all of those are emblems and icons of um, Black New York. And that's where um, these strangers um, find themselves in the 1920s. It's interesting to me um, because when I think about it, I'm thinking that my grandmother was born in 1922. And so she is born into post-World War World War II America. No, World War I America. Um, she is born, you know, after um, Reconstruction, you know, what they call it Reconstruction. And they are, these are Black people who are on the East Coast, to which, after spending some time on the East Coast recently in my life, I understand more vividly the connection between Blacks in New York and Blacks in Washington, D.C., and the Renaissance, and just when we talk about the Harlem Renaissance, we're talking about the emergence of Black intellectuals on a lot of different levels, from literature to philosophy to art um, to drama to music. This is Langston Hughes. This is Louis Armstrong. This is James Baldwin. This is Elaine Locke. These are all of these icons, Zora Neale Hurston, is all of these icons of literature are really meeting in James Baldwin. They're all meeting each other in Harlem and they're sharing ideas and um, they are upwardly mobile and trying to be free, uh, black people as much as possible. Um, and it, co it coincides with um, so a timeline is, you know, we had slavery. Then it was, quote unquote, the end of slavery going into uh, what they call Reconstruction. Concurrently with Reconstruction, there is um, what we call the Black Codes. Um, the Black Codes precedes the Jim Crow era. And so, and we're doing this because we're doing this during Black History Month. And so our intention was to kind of put a framework on this particular period film, right? So. Um, the Black Codes basically made it illegal to be Black in public. Mm. Like, basically, 
they could come and arrest you for being outside. Um, and at nighttime, they would come into your home and take you away um, for whatever arbitrary reason that they they wanted to make up. Um, this is the formation of um, what we understand today as the police, right? The police in America was created to capture runaway black people from slavery. That was why it was created. The police were created to uh, return runaway slaves to their owners. And so um, we had the black codes which deputized any white person or um, gave authority to any group of white people and we would call them the KKK today. Um, some might say they just traded in their uh, white robes for police, you know, blue uniforms, but that's a whole nother, that's a conversation. Um, and so while um, blacks are emerging and while we are legally, quote unquote, free, there is an institutional um, device whereby they they form the police, which is slavery by another name, right? And so we're going to talk in a minute about the prison in which they was on and all those things. But I think it's important for us to understand prohibition because the whole story turns on uh, Ray has this idea to go buy some moonshine. Well, why do they need to buy moonshine? Well, because alcohol was illegal during this time. And so it was an underground um, underground industry where black people were trying to get a part of it. And so um, there's the black codes. In the 1920s, 30s is the emergence of Jim Crow, um, which is black codes by another name. Um, it was concentrated in the South to which we see these black men go from New York down South to Mississippi um, to go get some hooch. <laughs> um, and, and so um, that's the historical context and, and the, the framework in which they find themselves, which is going to cause them all kind of problems to which this is, this is why it's complicated for me, why there are funny moments in this story. Right. Ain't none of this funny. Like, I, this is absolutely horrible. This is right. a nightmare of a story. And in 1999, I think I went to the theater and was so excited to see Eddie Murphy being funny and Martin and 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 Bernie back. It distracted us from how horrible these circumstances are and this story actually is. Um, and so I think when you look at it, I think it's a. I think we should appreciate. Um, and I think, you know, by the time we get to the end, we'll appreciate the enduring spirit of black people. Um, and while this is not based on a true story, it, it is based on a true story. Um, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And so um, let's get into the movie. Uh, the first act. Um, what did you think about the, the opening scenes and how they set up um, identifying these characters, these main characters? Um, I mean, so the opening scenes is it starts where they're at this the restaurant uh, owned by Rick James and spanking. And it's very clear that you can see the distinct difference between Claude and Ray. So Ray 
is, you know, fast talking. He's a bootlegger. He's at the front door talking his way into the room, right? He's a hustler. You can just, you can tell right away. His energy is high. He's like, yep, I'm ready to have a good time. I'm ready to go. What's up? What's up? Claude, on the other hand, is a stand-up guy. He's the guy that's sitting with his girl, having a nice dinner. You find out that he's celebrating um, getting a job, which is a really big deal. Like he went to night school. He got a good job as a banker. And he's excited about it, rightfully so. I mean, during that time, Black people in the banks, you know, it's not necessarily something that was um, happening on a daily basis. So he was, he was doing good for himself. And... It's just very clear. Even the way they move is just, it's just clear. It's very obvious. The Even the camera, the cinematography, like there's a scene where Ray is going really, really fast and he sees Claude and Claude is walking to the bathroom and everything just slows down. It's like those little moments and those little movements where you can see Ray on BS, Claude ain't. Um, so I think it did a great job of setting us up to understand exactly who these two characters are and how they move throughout even, I wouldn't even say life. No pun intended. Yeah. And so I, I think it's it's interesting, right? And they're all type of philosophical questions, right? Is and, and one being does life happen to us? And we we just adjust to whatever life does to us and I say that with the idea of uh, Claude is minding his business he goes to the restroom and he collides with this stranger and all of a sudden his life takes this road that he had not planned on Um, and he finds himself um, adjusting for the rest of his life off this chance meeting of this one person um when I looked at it, I thought if he hadn't been so squeamish about getting married, right? He, she mentions first of all that's Sanaa Lathan, and if Sanaa Lathan puts you know marriage on the table, you, you close that deal. He wasn't like going though. <laughs> he you, wasn't going. He like what clearly you mean? He, right, and he jumped and he spilled something on his on his shirt on his suit, and was like, oh, I need to go clean up. At that moment, his whole life changes. Cause right. he ain't even got his first paycheck, and here you are talking about doing the right thing, getting engaged, getting married, having kids. Can I pay for dinner first? I yeah. Again, you know, if Sanaa Lathan looking at you across the table talking about having babies, um, you know, you I, I get it. I, I I get it. I totally get it. Um, and yet his response changes his whole life, right? And so if I if he responds a different way. Perhaps his life turns out differently. And my question to you is centers around the haphazardness, the the roll of the dice, if we want to call it that. The you wake up one morning and you're on your way somewhere and then oh this happens and it sets a different trajectory for your whole life. And so the question is, well, what agency do we really have in life? Does uh, this the movie Life brings up a lot of philosophical philosophical questions about life itself? Um, strangers, how you know how strangers, somebody we don't meet, can dramatically have an effect on our lives in positive ways too, not just negative ways, right? Um, it could be a chance meeting of 
a friend uh, that you weren't, you know, looking to make. It could be a, you know, for me, it's been, you know, uh, a teacher or a professor you meet that, you know, all of a sudden becomes very important to you off a chance meeting. And so the question is, do we really have choices in our lives um, about our direction or are we just along for the ride? What do you think? I mean, if, if are we just speaking in general? Or what other way can we? Well, I mean, we, because we could no, don't do that. It could no, have been I mean, from like the viewpoint of like Claude and Ray. And the reason I say that is because I think it's a mixture. Me personally, I think it's a mixture. I think that little things are gonna happen in life that you can't control, that you don't see happening. You don't, you know, it's like all the little threads and strings just kind of intersect, interconnect. And sometimes it's serendipitous. Sometimes it's an absolutely beautiful thing. And then sometimes it's a complete disaster that I never saw coming. Uh, I think you can do your best to avoid some of those things or position yourself in ways where you do allow life to have more beautiful moments and more beautiful experiences. But ultimately, you know, is, is anything left to chance you can do everything that you possibly can but at the end of the day life is going to give you exactly what you're supposed to have that's what i think i think when it comes to these two characters however ray was more so of a risk taker right he was and we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit more but he was the guy that went and grabbed life by the horns and i'm gonna ride it till the wheels fall off Claude was not the risk taker. Claude was very green. Claude was very wholesome. And so he probably thought, which he did, go to school, get a good job, then, you know, probably get married, have a family, and just do the nice American dream as a black man in America. That's that's probably all he wanted. Ray, on the other hand, was like, listen, I'm gonna do what I need to do to get what I need to get done, keep it moving. So I think it's just, and it's that probably also plays way into like the ready with race. Right, like Ray talks about his father and how his the importance of his father in his life, and we learn that you know his father ended up dying in in the situation like he did. So obviously, his father probably has some very similar tendencies that probably led Ray to do some of the things that he's done. Whereas Claude, we don't know much about his upbringing, but you can tell that he probably just lived a quiet life and was looking to do that and probably stay out of the way of these, you know moments that can create chaos but more so let me stay low-key and be as calm cool and collected as i can absolutely um and and let's let's frame it we'll i think it's interesting frame to put it that let's just say life has destined claude and, and ray to be in prison let's just say that that's true yeah, it, 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 it is. Let's just say, well, that's your destiny. But life says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a friend who will be with you in it. And I, I, I think, and whether that context holds any truth or not, when you say life gives us what, what we're supposed to have, I think one of the things that life gives us in any context, hopefully, is a companion and a friend whether whether we go into the Super Bowl and in the suite and we living it up 
or whether we're in prison together, right? I think the gift um, that life gives us most often, hopefully, and everybody can't say that, so I understand that. But I think if you have a friend to be with you throughout all of these different contexts of your life, I think you're very fortunate. And if they are, life says, well, these two people are supposed to be in prison and that's just their destiny, I'm going to give them each other. Um, and I'm sure they didn't see it that way, but I think as, you know, this is what we do. We're analyzing and we're looking at it from different lenses. And so no, it's like, well, they didn't um, see it that way. No, I, I get it. But imagine them having to go to prison and they don't have each other. Um, I mean, yeah, that, I mean, that would suck. I'm, I'm sure, you know, it would be a, definitely a different movie. And their friendship is one of the things that the movie is built on. Like, it's their companionship. So I, I agree with you. I'm sure they would probably rather just not be in prison at all. But yeah, then again, exactly. you wouldn't have a movie, so here yeah. we are. <laughs> right. So. Um, and so, um, they are, it, the movie opens, they have this chance meeting. Um, like you said, Ray is robbing, trying to rob Claude. It goes wrong. Um, they meet Spanky and the race deal to which you characterize him kind of free will and fast talking, trying to get out says, Hey, Spanky, we got, we pick up some moonshine in Mississippi. Now here's my first problem with this is that they're, they're in New York. They're in the hub of bootleg liquor. Why do you need to leave New York to go get moonshine? Like, that doesn't make sense rationally. It makes sense for the story. But I've been to New York. It's really huge. New York is great. It's one of my favorite places. Uh, okay. I mean, it's not for everybody. It's but... not. And it's not for me. <laughs> but... I, I I get the appeal. I I I, I can see the appeal on some level or another. And, and New York is a huge space, so I'm sure there was somebody who had a warehouse or something, a couple of cases of moonshine, where you did not have to go to the south. I am just adamantly against black people being in the south for any reason. Like, just don't go. Like, it never. It just never works out. It just never, never, never works out. Um, and it didn't work out for them. And so um, they go down, they get the, they do what they're supposed to do. They acquire the cases of, of moonshine. Have you ever had moonshine? Um, I don't believe it was super authentic, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. um, I've had moonshine, I believe I was in New Orleans and um, it definitely turned me into a different creature. It, uh, whatever I drank, it was labeled moonshine and it definitely grew some hair on my chest. Not in a good way. It, it was, I, I don't necessarily need to have it again. Whether it was authentic or not, I don't care. Whatever was in that bottle. You good off that? I don't ever need to have it again. <laughs> I'll pass on this one. Thank you very much. Okay, yeah. Well, it was a, a moonshine during that time was a very big deal. And and so it could be sold to make some, you know, make some money. And that's what they did. Uh, they acquired it. And then Ray, instead of 
getting back in the truck. Get your get your <laughs> tail back on the truck. This is the reason we in this problem, this this situation exactly. now. We talk too much. Just let's let's go. We both here. Let somebody drive. Let's get out. <laughs> let's, let's get out of here. But he's attracted to that sound. He's he needs to find out what they're doing over there. And they you know find some club and um, he gets involved in a in a poker game and he gets took. He gets took. He, he, he get, he get took. All the money. Now here's I don't gamble. I don't gamble. Um, I I just don't know how he didn't think to put some of the money away and be like, I'm not gonna gamble the whole the whole stash, right? I'm gonna at least put something up so I can put gas in the car so we can get out of here. <laughs> like he well, put everything on the table. But you <laughs> have to think about it, right? So he's the risk taker of the two of them, of Claude and Ray. He's the risk taker. Claude had the two dollars, so he's like. And we're talking about 1940s, 1930s, uh, 1930s, excuse me. $2 for gas could probably get to the moon and back twice. (laughs) These days, you can't get out the gas station with $2 of gas. Mm -hmm. So in his mind, he's like, Claude, first of all, Claude didn't want to come. He definitely didn't bank on Claude meeting this girl meeting Sylvia whose mama needed an operation. And yeah. remember, Claude is super green, right? So when this woman tells him, you got some honey? Listen, she's giving cleave. She's giving she sex. Was. She's giving I get it. I get it. I'm not he, mad at Claude. I, I get it. That he was not getting from Daisy in, <laughs> in New York. So this was a different type of woman. She had some different type of curves. He wasn't used to. Yeah. So he wasn't... You keep, Ray definitely didn't think Claude was going to be that guy, but Claude is that guy. He's been that guy from the beginning. So, you know, for them, it was like, well, Claude's thinking, well, Ray know how to gamble. Of course, he going, you know, we going to be good. Claude thinking, well, well, I mean, Ray thinking, well, Claude, Claude going to stay out of trouble. If we don't have nothing else walking away from this table, we're going to have these $2 to be back to New York. Yeah, and that all turned out wrong. And they both right. shocked each other. <laughs> They that both all, shot each other. Yeah, that all turned out wrong. And and so they get took. And uh, now they try to figure out how to how to leave. And they come out the club. And Winston Hancock has been murdered. Who was the guy that took? He yes. Swindled, swindled, uh, yes. And so uh, they are arrested and put in jail. Yeah, it was, um, it was a quick trial. They what, what trial? What they due process? Them. Like, there was, <laughs> first of all, first, I mean, it's so many different things. And I think there's something else that we can pause for a quick moment. It's one of the scenes that I was going to bring up. But if we're thinking, like, you know, chronological order, I could just talk about it now. Before they even get to Mississippi, they stop. And they have, they stop at this restaurant, which is whites only, it's all white. It's white as snow. Mm. And Claude just wants a couple of slices of pie. Yeah. And some coffee because they've been driving all night. Now, Ray immediately sees this ain't that. We are mm-hmm. not in the North anymore. Little brother, come on, let's go. Because these people, Billy and his mama, whoever. <laughs> ma'am. Ma'am. <laughs> ma'am. 
they not going. They, no. they this is this is a whites only pie. But yeah. even in that moment, you see just how gullible and green Claude is. He's like, "What's the problem? Like, what you mean? Come on, these yeah. are some good people. They gonna give us pies." Till she pulled out that rifle, the mm-hmm. shotgun, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and was like, "Get gone." So I feel like that even starts to see because even them coming off of that, it's like, dang, they they've been driving, they hungry, they finally get some, you know, hooch. They have a good time, and then they run into continuing with Jim Crow. This situation that, like you say, they just walked into it. Like Hancock hit what's his name, Winston. Winston. Yeah, he just got killed by the, yeah. the sheriff, and the sheriff is like, "Oh, you'll be all right, knowing good and damn well you're the one that." Did. But they don't know that. Yeah, and even um, then, Claude was like, "We're gonna be all right. We're we gonna be all right, sir. Sir, <laughs> you about to get a whole new set of clothing for the rest of your life." Hey, Molly, you in trouble, girl? Baby, you- <laughs> Molly, you in danger? <laughs> you got to go. Yeah, uh, life turned. Life happened real fast, like overnight, literally, yeah. like. Um, there was no due process. There, there's, you know, no DNA evidence. There's no murder weapon. No nothing. Just you know. Um, and I love how I love how they filmed it. When you went from oh, you know, prison, we'll work it out. You know, we'll explain to the judge. Next scene, life. Whoa. Right. <laughs> Whoa. With the witnesses, there was no. I yeah. Know, had the attorney. They probably just showed up to represent themselves. Life in prison. I and. In again, the South. In the South. Again, I, I remember seeing it in 1999 and thought, oh, that's, that's, that's hilarious. Now you look at it, you'd be like, life? <laughs> life. Life. Your whole life has been taken away from you over God. something you did not do. Which over a life? chance meeting with some stranger in a bathroom. Yeah. All because you got a job at the bank and you want to take your girl to celebrate. That's it. That's it. Ate um, at home. Should I ate at home? It, it just brings to the forefront how vulnerable black people have always been in America. Right? Um, that no matter our, our, our guiltiness or innocence, like that doesn't matter in a judicial system that isn't allowed to see us as human beings. Yeah. Pretty much. Um, and how tragic and horrible um, that is. And so to go from, oh, I will explain to the judge, to that's it, life in prison. Good Lord. And when you look at the courtroom, I don't know if you saw it in that scene, it was filled with a lot of black people. Like it was full of a lot of black men who were in handcuffs waiting to go before the judge. And we like know how it ended. They give like, that life sentences today. I'm a me. long like, day. Continuance, please. This is not going to end well. Yeah. And so it just happened for them real quick. And, and so now... This is where the movie is going to spend the bulk of their time, um, them in in prison. And so um, 
I, I want us to give, I just want to give a framework for, for the prison. This is a Mississippi State Prison, um, which is also known as Parchman Farm, right? Um, it's a maximum security prison uh, located in an unincorporated community of Parchman in South Flower County, Mississippi, in the Mississippi Delta region. Um, it's about 20, 28 square acres of land. Uh, and it's the only maximum security prison in the state of Mississippi. Um, so here's what, here's why it's important. And when we look at the prison, this particular prison, it ain't Shawshank. It's a farm and it's in the Mississippi Delta. And one of the reasons it's a, it's a farm is you couldn't legally have slaves anymore. But the state needed to make up the deficit that the slave industry um, used to bring, the money. And so here's where we see um, the black body as a commodity, right? A black body as an asset that, so we can't enslave black people, but we'll find any reason to put them in prison to which they call them and we've we you see in the movie they're connected by chains mm -hmm. right so these is what we call the chain gang and these were black bodies who guilty or innocent became wards of the state and the state leased the these black bodies out to different plantations to work the farm for cotton for sugar for tobacco it was free labor, right? And so it, when you look at it through that prism, it's still slavery. It's just slavery by a different name. Mm -hmm. So for much of the 19th century after American Civil War, the state of Mississippi used a convict lease system for its prisoners. Leasees paid fees to the state and were responsible for the feeding, clothing, and housing of prisoners who worked uh, for, them, for their labor. And so let's just say, um, in a year, uh, these they leased them out and their crops or whatever they brought in totaled about $108,000. In today's economy, that would be like $6.3 million. So this is where we get the rise of the, imprison, the prison industrial complex in America, that prisons became a place for states and federal governments to make money. And in order for a prison to be a prison, what do you need? You need prisoners. Well, you got a lot of all these black people running around thinking they free because you can't, you know, keep them on plantations anymore. So let's just round them up arbitrarily and um, put them, you know, in these systems. And um, that is what it was. So what's written about um, wild. Yeah, it, no, this is that's, that's <laughs> this is wild. this is why there's an assault on DEI, right? The, you don't they don't want to talk about this part of American history, right? This this 1920s to which my grandmother was born in. This ain't like it was I mean, 200 years ago. Too, yeah, right. Like this um, <laughs> this happened just a minute ago. <laughs> yikes! So convicts, uh, I don't even. I can't even wrap my mind around being in prison jail for any reason, you all. Let's just start there. But not only am I a convict, I'm being leased out like headphones. Like, yeah. like borrow me. Like, 
borrow me? Like what? Mm. Mm-hmm. It's like library headphones. Like make sure you bring it back in good condition. What? Right, right, right. Exactly. Uh, being black in America is so exhausting sometimes. <laughs> so so this is so let's let's dig a little deeper in the history of Parchment Farms in the 1960s, right? In the spring of 1961, the Freedom Riders, John Lewis and them, went to the American South to desegregate public facilities. Um, and as they were going through, uh, violence erupted and engulfed the, the riders in Alabama and the federal government intervened. The governors of Alabama and Mississippi agreed to protect the Freedom Riders in exchange for them being allowed to arrest them. Right. So John Lewis and all of them go down there and all of the people was being violent towards them. The the governor said, OK, we'll stop the violence if we are allowed to arrest them. And they brought them to Parchment Farm. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so in June and um, in June of 1961, 163 freedom riders had been convicted in Jackson and jailed at Parchment on July on June 15th of 1961. The state government sent the first set of freedom riders from Hines Prison to Parchment to make the protesters as uncomfortable as possible. They were put to work in chain gangs. The first group sent uh, to the farm were 45 male freedom fire fire. Freedom Riders and 29 blacks, 29 blacks and 16 were white. Uh, the prison authorities forced the Freedom Riders to remove their clothing to undergo strip searches. After the strip searches, deputy met them, uh, Freedom Riders and began intimidating them. Um, they began to mock them um, when they arrived. It's quoted as saying, when they arrived in Jackson, they were stripped of their clothing and gave and were given a t-shirt and loose fitting boxer shorts and no more. It was the beginning of many steps to try to intimidate and humiliate the Freedom Riders. They were denied the most basic items such as pencils and papers or books. Um, It is quoted by Freedom Riders saying, in our cells, we were given a Bible and aluminum cup and a toothbrush. The cell measured six by eight feet with a toilet and sink on the back wall and a bunk bed. We were permitted one shower per week and no mail was allowed. The policy in the maximum security block was to keep lights on 24 hours a day. Breakfast every morning was black coffee, strongly flavored. Um, They were given grits, a biscuit, and blackstrap molasses. Lunch was generally some form of beans or black-eyed peas boiled with pork gristle, served with cornbread. In the evening, it was the same lunch, except it was cold. So we're not making what what we see about you know the the funny scene about cornbread and all of that. When you look, they they try to make this as accurate as possible that these were the conditions these men were living in. And Ron and Clay, Ray and Claude are in the 1930s. By the 1960s, they were still doing the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> like. <laughs> yeah. Right. I don't even have the words. Yeah. So Black History, like this is. I mean, it's Black History Month, which is why we chose this movie. But honestly, this is why this podcast is important because it digs into this type of historical context. I appreciate you for educating the people. Yeah. So um, 
again, Eddie Murphy's ability and and the whole cast to make this a they call this a comedy. Well, let's just say the laughter has ceased to smidge. Uh, not as funny anymore. No, it's genius, though, <laughs> right? It, it, it speaks to their genius and how radical Eddie Murphy was to want to even tell the story. To say that, like, Americans have, have had to do all through history to tell the truth in public, but we have to mix it with a little humor in order for it to be digestible to the masses, right? And so... In between these conditions are these moments of levity that at night, you know, at 1999, I was so distracted by Eddie Murphy being funny that you don't see what you're actually seeing until you get a little older or look at it through different lens and be like, oh, but this ain't, <laughs> this is like good times. Y'all just, right. these are horrible conditions and y'all just put a laugh track under it and then <laughs> supposed to. Shoot. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about ruining your favorite movie. <laughs> but this is what Ron DeSantis wants to ban this movie in Florida. Like he does not want these kinds of truth being told. And so these were the conditions. So they find themselves at, at, at Parchment Prison. And this is where they spend the bulk of the rest of their life. Yeah. Living in these conditions. Now, the saving grace is what they find there, which is community. Um, And I think that is emblematic of black people um, in America specifically, is that wherever we find ourselves in the most horrible conditions, whether that's the projects or whether that's on parchment farms or wherever we find ourselves, we're gonna find each other. We gonna find our people. (laughs) We are going to find our people. And we gonna find light in each other, right? (laughs) Going to find a way to smile, to laugh, to to bear one another's burdens. Um, and because, I think it's a yeah. great gift. Yeah, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I was just gonna say, because they definitely made it bearable for mm-hmm. each other, right? I wouldn't say enjoyable, but they made it bearable. And even digging the ditch however many hours a day, they had each other. Right. They had each other and you can see these moments where of course, through comedy, where they really have each other's backs. Like, they really do stick together. And the um, the trustee knows it. Like, everybody knows it, you know? And you don't, it's just this core group. Like, you have Cookie, you got Biscuit, you got Jangling. Like, you have these, these characters. You don't really see anyone else in detail. We don't really get a chance to know. But those core, the ones that slept in that same room, they had each other's back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and let's imagine what it been what it would have been like if they had not have found each other. Like if this is what life has to give us, but I have to do this alone, it would have been excruciatingly more horrible versus if I have a friend with me. Um it makes it a little lighter. Like it makes it just a little bit bearable. Like we can find some air to breathe when we have one one another. And so they find community and then they they create a community mm-hmm. um, with one another. And for all of the people you, we meet, like you said, Jenga Lang and Cookie and and all the rest of them, <laughs> they are absolutely delightful in, in their own charming, charming ways. Um, they really are. <laughs> they are. They're beautiful, like in their own black... <laughs> 
they are. Black wonderful ways. They <laughs> like if you're gonna be in prison for life, these are the people you would want. You these would want to are the people. Yeah, you would want to be with like these these people. Man, uh, make it a little a little bearable. Um, so let's move into let's move into key scenes here. Um, what what are yours? Oh, uh, well, I talked a little bit about uh, the the opening scene, kind of like with yours. Um, I would say the the baseball team. I can't get right. It's it's a few scenes, but just that in in general. So they've been on the the camp. They've been at camp for twelve years, I think. At this point, you know they're pretty familiar. Um, Martin Lawrence, Claude, now got this. You know whispers thick mustache across his face and they they've gotten comfortable in their positions right so they start this baseball team against one of the rival camps and can't get right comes who's bokeem will buy who by the way does not say a word and it's not a word he is mute um and they found out that he could play baseball he becomes like the star and what's so dope is that this is around the time when there's a Negro League recruiter who is interested in him because the dude is killing. Um, and they're taking care of him. Again, that, that whole thing of community. They take care of him. Ray and Claude are his handlers, as they call themselves. But this um, Negro League recruiter is interested in him. Also, what's happening within this time frame is May Rose, who was the superintendent's daughter has grown up. And as Anthony Anderson said, she got yams. (laughs) That's that's, that's where it came from. (laughs) She, right. Yeah, that's the original. Mm -hmm. She has these cars, beautiful, but she is a blonde white woman. And can't get right in her make this connection. So on one end, they're prepping for this big uh, baseball game. You got this recruiter who is interested and can't get right and Claude sees this as an opportunity to get off the camp he says it like this is our ticket out on the other hand you got can't get right who is making ass because that's all he can do make ass with this mm, woman mm, mm. and who make ass with this woman and she ends up pregnant she's already married but she ends up pregnant so you have these two very different on opposite sides like this can get us off the camp on the other side you have this forbidden love of this black man and this white woman who by the way how did this even happen where did this even happen Dr. Umar would be very displeased <laughs> Dr. Umar would be very displeased with that white snow bunny uh, you getting seduced by that <gasps> that white oh. snow bunny <laughs> oh my god <laughs> <laughs> oh lord well in the scene this whole yeah. scene mm-hmm. ends and it gives us the famous you know i'm the pappy because this baby mm-hmm. is born mm-hmm. and this beautiful mixed baby who is mm-hmm. brown more than anything brown little mm-hmm. butterball and uh, you know that's the whole i'm the pappy because he's trying to figure out who birthed this who is the father of this child but then we also see right after can't get right does get picked up by the recruiter that told Claude and Ray that he would put in a good word for them. But they find out that pardons aren't cheap. And so 
they will not be leaving with Can't Get Right, who is now going on to Negro Leagues. That's when you also see the spark of hope in uh, Claude die, because he's like, you know, it it just hit me. I'm going to be here for the rest of my life. Like, no, Mm -hmm. fam. So, yeah. Yeah. um, And my my key scene, one of my key scene, which I I think is the most important scene, so I I get my most important scene out of the way, is, is the scene right after what what Claude tells Ray, right? Like my life has been horrible ever since I met you. Um, I think that's important because we're kind of coasting through this movie and it's it, it's really light. Like, you know, with all the funny stuff and who's gonna eat your, your cornbread and all that other kind of stuff. But that moment right there, like brought it down to earth. Like this yeah. is their life, this is serious. And he has every right to be angry with Ray and this system and mad at his own hope because his cousin Melvin is supposed to come through and cousin Melvin Listen, ended up. Many, <laughs> mo, Melvin. <laughs> Melvin and so, amazing now. Yeah, so I... I I appreciate it, and I think that's just, it was so important. Like in the middle of this movie, to acknowledge like like Claude, a lot of them should be mad, and probably were. But he expressed it like on behalf of everybody. Like, look, you know, I didn't ask for this. I ain't asked for your friendship. I ain't asked mm-hmm. to meet you. I ain't asked for none of this. And ever since I met you, <laughs> my life has been horrible. And now I'm going to be in here for the rest of my life. And it just dawned on me. And I think yeah. as an audience, hearing him articulate that brings us down to the reality. Like, oh, well, yeah, this ain't funny. And they really are spending their lives in jail. For in real. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For real. And so I think that for me, um, I, 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 yeah, I, I think it's one of the best scenes. It might not be the most important scene, but I think okay. that, that scene was really, really significant. That's fair. Um, another scene for me that's a key scene. Um, we talked about, you know, nigga only eyes that we see in the beginning of the movie, but it resurfaces at the, I would say, almost close to the end of the movie when they are definitely old men. Um, and Ray, well, Claude sees this pie cooling on the windowsill. Mm. And the same pie that he wanted. All them years, we're thinking like maybe 30 something, 40 something years before, he sees this pot and he sees his chance. Mm-hmm. And nothing else matters but him and that pie. And that pie. At the end of the day. So you see him running across, grabbing this pie, which is swiping pot, by the way. And he's taking what was never given to him. Mm. It's like, it's, it's mine. That's great. But what I also love about the scene is not just that, it's what gets Ray and Claude talking again because they go through after the don't talk to me, you know, my life's gonna be like this was for you. They stop talking. And so you, all these years have passed, they're old men. And Ray has the, well, the, the, what is the man that runs the cat? What's his name? The man that runs the actual prison. The black man or the, the... no, not the trustee, not Hoppin' John. The, the sergeant, jeez, mm-hmm. the sergeant tells Ray, if you watch Claude, because Claude is standing on these bottles of punishment, if you watch Claude, 
if he so much as moves, you put a bullet in him and I will walk you out this prison. Ray literally mm-hmm. had the chance to leave. Yep. And he like, no, I will put a bullet in you. All these years have passed. And even though the last thing that Claude said to him was hurtful, truthful, but hurtful, he still got his back. He's still yeah. like, no, I ain't, I ain't about to do my man's like that. So. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to talk to him no more, but I don't want him dead. Like there's right. a, like the, like there's a difference between. <laughs> the, like I don't the, hate the, him like the, that. The, right, 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 right. Um, that yeah, that's a great that's a great scene and great pickup. Um, okay, so I think my most important scene, I think the most beautiful scene, is the scene uh, about the boom boom room, right? So when Ray comes into the prison, he tells him he he owns a spot. You know, uh, making up stuff. Uh, I own the spot and uh, Satchmo and all, and everybody come through. And so at night, you know, where they winded down, back probably bo- broken a million pieces. Man. They start imagining life outside of the prison and what that would be, right? And so you see all of them in tuxes and having a good time, and the champagne is flowing. and everybody you know ordering steaks and we good and that little respite of using their imagination to think about to conjure what their life could have been um it actually gets them out of the prison for a moment mm-hmm. and that is the power of our minds our souls our psyches and what you alluded to is is hope right even if it's not hope that, oh, we're going to get out and we're going to go there. It is the hope that we create in our own minds in order to get through some of the most horrendous circumstances and situation. And them collectively doing that together, like they all have a stake in it. They all have a piece. Yeah. Somebody on the crap table. Somebody's at the door. Somebody is a musician. That kind of envisioning of what life could have been if they were allowed to be free just allows the movie to breathe a little bit up under the weight of all of the other stuff that they we see them them going through and so to me that is just a wonderful wonderful scene and it's not like there's a lot of dialogue it's not like there's a whole bunch going on in the scene but to the visualization of it um to see them outside of their prison clothes and smiling, you know, um, and free. I just thought that was beautiful. Just black people minding their own black business. Nobody <laughs> having a, bothering them. Having a good time, right? Nobody <laughs> bothering them. No one's getting shot. You Nobody know? bothering them. Um, I will say that Ray was, he was a hope dealer. Like, hmm. he was a dreamer. He held on to the possibilities, although it just did not seem like it was going to make any sense. But even like, yo, last night I was at Ray's Boom Boom Room. Not everybody know last night you was here, sitting here with us in Camp Eight, right? But the fact that, and he was probably the only person that had ever done that for them, that had ever brought something like that to their imagination, where just for a minute, a second, they were able to escape the reality that they were living. And it really was a beautiful moment. And he does this throughout the movie 
from mm -hmm. the boom boom room to as many times as he tried to escape and every single time failed he truly believed that he was gonna get out and mm -hmm. it was like if i can take you with me not everybody but you know like claude come on fam i got you mm -hmm. he was gonna mm -hmm. do it mm -hmm. yeah i think that's yeah i, I think that's amazing um any other any other scenes stick out to you? Uh, it's so many scenes in this. I would say there's scenes and there's moments, right? Like mm -hmm. the the jangling jangling. You know, when they're sitting outside and you learn that none of them can read, mm. and <laughs> <laughs> Claude is like, "Well, I don't know, Ray. I read, and he reads the letter, and they like, no, nah, I thought it's bad news. You know, we don't want nothing like that. We don't want to find nothing else." Um, the the scene where they're in the um the cafeteria the calf and they're the cornbread you know and they're talking about the different things they did to to end up there but like I said it's always like a little little moments when when biscuit died cookie no biscuit was cook when cookie died when cookie mm -hmm. decided that he would rather die than go home to his mother as a gay man that's pretty powerful whoo yeah I was like tragic i i teared up for the fact i watch this movie often that was the first time he kind of hit me a little differently i'm like dang that man really chose death over life outside of a prison that had held him captive for so long um and and, and well because i think that's profound um the idea of being free for him was scary and perhaps Though what we're saying is that what he is saying is I found real freedom in prison. Mm. Right. That's a good one. Right. So I can be free to be who I am in here. If I go back out there, I have to be a slave again. Right. Um, I got to give it to you on that one. That's a good one. Yeah. And, and so I, I think. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's complicated. I think it's beautiful. I think it's tragic. Again, I think that speaks to community, right? Because in there, everybody just saw him as he was and who he was, yeah. and it just wasn't a big thing. He knows if I get out of here, who I am is I going to be a yeah, it's going to be a thing, and I'm going to be alone. Yeah, you're still talking about the 1940s. Yeah, it had to be 40s. Yeah, you know, at that point, point um, late yeah. 40s, early 50s. So it's it's not that that was widely accepted. Yeah. No matter where he went. And he was in the South. We can't assume that he was going back north. We don't know where he came from. Right. So if he was a black gay man in the South, you as good as dead out there. Yeah. You know, as you in here. But that's not the last thing that I want to discuss. Um, <laughs> it's towards the end of the movie. So Claude and Ray are much older. And they are now working in the uh, superintendent's house. And it's so many... This movie is full of, like I said, off-script lines that just kill it. But they run into Sheriff Pike, mm -hmm. who's now older as well. And there's this scene where they're in the, um, like a field. They're, the sheriff and the superintendent are uh, hunting. And Ray and Claude are out there. And Ray, Ray hears his father's watch, which had a very distinct like little medley, melody, whatever, uh, that it played. And he hears the watch and he says, who, who gave that to you? 
And this little demon mm-hmm. lies, of course, says my wife. He's like about 40 years ago. And we see in this moment that the superintendent learns that these men have been um, accused and have been held in prison for something they did not do. And the way that this man, Sheriff Pike says, well, you know, the state of Mississippi got 40 years of labor. Like, what does it matter? (laughs) No, you lying. It was going to be a matter of who going to kill him because... Mm, mm, mm. Like what you what you what what not what do you what you mean? Mm, mm. It don't matter. Yeah, that hit hard like that. Ooh, what does it matter? Cause the state of Mississippi got cheap labor effect. Mm, mm, mm. You took these men there. You took their lives yeah. away from them over a lie. Yeah. And and then the nerve is worth the watch. That was really the kicker. And another with that kicker was he said that line like so casually, like he didn't have to think about it. It was like, yeah, state of Mississippi got forty years of free labor. What we so what? What do we? What's the problem? Whoa! (laughs) So you just had that cocked and ready, right? You just okay. All right, who going who pulling the trigger? Like, you can assume that he's done it before. This isn't the first time. You know, like how many innocent people did you put in prison? Oh my god! Exactly. So nice to know that the superintendent killed him. However, it sucks because the superintendent right. who and it's it's really interesting because a scene before that, the superintendent and Claude are having a conversation about um, the superintendent's retirement, and he makes a comment to Claude like, "How long you been here?" Claude says, "You know, over forty years." Me and Ray Gibson, and you know, it's a long time for someone that's not that that's innocent like that doesn't deserve to be here and the superintendent's like yeah well a lot of people say that Claude is like well you know basically like it's not me like it's not funny because he says don't you think that's funny that a lot of people feel that way Claude says no so now that he is proven that like yo when I told you I didn't do it I didn't do it mm-hmm. and he was going to let them go he said nope I'm no longer your boss you all will be a free man then this man go in the bathroom and dies I Sir, life be life and don't it? Sir, <laughs> sir, I don't know what happened in that bathroom. Yeah, you yeah. Your spirit and it, your it would be at life. that moment. I would have said to myself, "Okay, I'm supposed to just be in prison." Like clearly, this <laughs> was what Whoa. the universe, where the universe wants me. <laughs> like, let me go. Yeah, I'd be like, okay. I quit now. I yield. You're right. I'm You're supposed right. to be here because this, this, right. this yeah. If this nigga go to the bathroom and don't come back out, and he was gonna set me free, oh I'm supposed to be here. This is <laughs> all right. All right. Oh that was on me. I misunderstood the. I misunderstood the assignment. Like it was. <laughs> I would have blew the house up. I was burned it to the ground. Do you hear me? Like. <laughs> set fire to this hole. Oh <laughs> Yo, it wouldn't yeah. even been cool. I would have been at that table read like, I'm sorry, what? Yeah. <laughs> if we don't get out, what do you mean? <laughs> In the next scene. No, 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 yeah. no, 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 no. Yeah. So just... <clears throat> but that just it just it just goes to show that then and even now, 
how some black people true not, not black people excuse me how some people truly do not view black lives like you would much rather just throw someone in jail throw someone in prison for life really over an ego situation because when him and Hancock got into it it was because he said I told you to leave Mississippi and he said yeah your wife told me to stay mm. it was an ego situation that led to this and you just took from them yeah. and then it's worth a watch yeah, it was horrible. Oh Lord! My my last significant scene uh, that I have, and we'll wrap it up, <clears throat> is and I'm gonna I'm gonna give him this because they put it on the screen, and I think we should acknowledge it. So remember when they're older, they're older men now, and a sergeant comes and says, "We're moving you to the house." Yeah. To the sergeant. He goes on to say, he says, and I'm not gonna miss y'all faces ever again or something like that. And mm-hmm. then he pauses right there. Like mm-hmm. he gets he He's gets choked. choked. Mm-hmm. He gets choked, potion. right? And it acknowledges the fact that they've spent their lives together too. Yeah. Right. And they have become attached in some ways. And there's this I, I, idea that those who imprison other people are prisoners themselves, right? Mm-hmm. And so they are they are as traumatized as the people they are in prison because they're both caught up in this system together. Um, and that, that little brief moment of acknowledgement of him choking up humanizes him in a way as an old man that <clears throat> wouldn't have worked 40 years before. And it acknowledges the fact that we're all humans and we have all been in this thing together. And you not being here is significant to me in some ways. Um, yeah. And I, I thought that was poignant and, and, and touching. So, um, okay. So let's do it. Let's wrap this up. Uh, so who is your MVP? Oh my gosh. Um, MVP, I have two because, you know, there's really no actresses. In, I mean, mm-hmm. we have actresses in the movie, but their roles are very um, supporting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, have to, I have to give it to both Eddie and Martin. Like, mm-hmm. this is one of those movies where you really couldn't have one without the other. Like, they could not be replaced. It had to be Eddie and Martin. It, mm-hmm. it couldn't have been like Eddie and Chris Rock or Cedric Entertainer and Mark. Like it couldn't have been anyone but these two. Yeah. They played in considering now we have all the historical context. They played the hell out these roles. Like I respect them on a different level in this film because yes, it was comedic, but they especially Eddie being the producer and this being his movie found a way to bring this story to life again no pun intended that had never been told before in this way mm-hmm. in this way um so I, I gotta give it to both of them I couldn't choose one okay um I was gonna I was leaning towards Martin 
and I, I've been public. I am not the biggest Martin Lawrence fan, uh, but I he didn't try to be funny in this movie. Like Eddie was the comedic yeah, um, that's true. relief. That's true. He played the straight man. And I think he just grounds this film and certain emotional realities that lets Eddie be whimsical and be funny and be the yeah, fast talker and that. Yeah. And, and I think it does, like you say, it doesn't work without Martin. Like Eddie could be funny all day long. And, but I think for the, the story they wanted to tell, you needed somebody on the ground emotionally. And that was Martin. And so I think just his, his, the role he played in it, in the story was, was he's he's my MVP. Okay. Absolutely. Um, like you said, there were no actresses um in the film per se. Uh but um who's your sixth man? Here I am breaking the rules again. Um that's two. Bernie Mac, Jangle Leg. First of all I didn't know his name was Jangle Leg in this movie until <laughs> I rewatched it for this purpose. And I was like, shut your face. Mm -hmm. Uh so Bernie Mac. Mm -hmm. who just, again, not a major character, but so memorable. Mm -hmm. So memorable. So little, so many one-liners. That scene when they are at the baseball field and <laughs> can't get right, hit that ball. If you look at Bernie Mac and the antics, the foolery that he's <laughs> doing in that corner, hilarious. Um, so him, and I would have to say also, popping up. Who was the trustee played by Brent Jennings? Loved his role. Yeah, he just Loved delivered. His role. Like he just he he, he delivered. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he yeah. just he he stood his ground and he just, you know, he he delivered. So those yeah. are my two. Um, okay. Those are those are great. I'm gonna go over and I don't I can't remember his his name uh in the film. But what we, I think what we haven't talked about is that this is actually told in first person that mm. somebody is telling this story about how he recalls his two friends. And so I think he's the sixth man because wow. it's his yeah. story. He is telling us a story about these two people he met one day who showed up in his prison um, where he was at. And I think that they do a good job of kind of interweaving a, a voiceover. It starts off where we see him in a wheelchair um, at the grave. And then periodically we come back to and we remember like, oh, well, he's he's telling us this story. Um, and then at the end, um, he kind of he's the guy who puts a button on it for us in um, a whimsical way, I, I think. Um, yeah. And so I think he's the sixth man. I think for me. Is it Opa Yeah, I didn't even try. Like I was like him. He plays Willie because he's also a great actor. Yes. Doesn't always get you know his absolutely just do. But I like he was the first Jeffrey Wright. Yeah, he is the original. I would go with that. I would go with that. He is a dope actor, but yeah, I like what you said that he and it's easy to forget that this is his story. Yeah. This is yeah. him telling the story. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would say my last, because we do most important scene, which we've done a lot of them. 
mm-hmm. um, and best scene. My best scene is all of them. I ain't have no best scene. Gotcha. Um, but I would say the most important scene, and this scene is overlooked, I can guarantee you, by everybody. Nobody talks about this scene. There is a time lapse, like a montage, mm-hmm. where you see all of these different things that have happened in life while mm-hmm. Ray and Claude mm-hmm. were not talking to each other. Mm-hmm. And not only do you see, like you see, like um, Martin Luther King, I have a dream, like you see all these these different things, these different moments, but you also see the disappearance of essentially this community mm-hmm. in, in mm-hmm. Camp Bates. So you see radio disappear. You see... Um, Jangalang disappear. You see Hop and Bob disappear. You see all these people, Cookie, all these people that had not Cookie, Biscuit, excuse me. These people that have died while Ray and Claude are still very much so alive. Mm-hmm. And it's like, dang, y'all really was in there a long time. Because they didn't talk for a long time. It was mm-hmm. like, not only were y'all in there not talking, y'all lost all these people. Yeah. Like a Thanos finger snap, wasn't it? They just Man. all just just, <laughs> they just all the just fade out was fade. hard. <laughs> y'all just killed about six people in yeah. like two minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and with that, the sad thing is none of them ever got free. I guess they was all on life bids. Yeah, um, yeah. And so, yeah, that that's what it is. So, um, that's it. Real quick before we give our grades. And we break out the soundtrack. Got to talk Ooh. about the movie, uh, the love music. The um, as a whole, I don't know if I I love it uh, as it a whole. It's it, not a playthrougher. Yeah, it got some hits, and I'm gonna tell you. Listen, Rob is where he's supposed to be, but I tell you that guy could make some great music. Like you cannot. You cannot. <laughs> Look, I'm and sorry. Listen, that. Listen, that fortunate is still good today. Ooh. That's Maxwell. I'm sorry. Like I, I'm not, I'm not giving you that back. Like I got the. Sorry, that that record is <laughs> record is wonderful to this day. So again, Rob is where he's supposed to be. And that that is what it is but just remember music doesn't urinate on people it does not it wow. doesn't art doesn't do that like i think we are <laughs> you cannot penalize the art because <laughs> of the artist that. i'm just saying um, okay that's that's all i'm saying that uh, i suggest that now that's not for everybody and i support black women so i'm on your side but the the music the music that's is the music. Whole, that's a whole episode within itself. <laughs> yeah. um, we have Fortunate from Maxwell. We have Life, the title track from Casey and JoJo, which mm-hmm. the soulfulness of that song. I mean, I love Casey and JoJo anyway, but they, they growled yeah. in that song. Okay. They ruined this record for me Uh-oh. when I when I heard them in the Tom Jordan studio. <laughs> it's like. Like y'all are just y'all just ruin this just ruin this whole song for me. <laughs> what are y'all Vocal doing? <laughs> what? In their throats, man. <laughs> I mean, they were screaming. I mean, they listen, growling. listen. Growling. Lots of cocaine, lots of alcohol later, and you just couldn't. They couldn't. 
they ain't have it. They have it like they used to have it. So, um, another song that's I think also overlooked is a uh, New Day by Wyclef. It's a song that plays during the montage. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's a dope song. And then of course, what would you do? By mm. City High. City Shout High. Claudette Ortiz. Ortiz. My goodness gracious. <laughs> you all right? Oof, no, I'm not. No. I'm sorry. No. <laughs> ain't never been all right since day one. That five five with brown eyes. I can't I can't Let's take go. it. <laughs> okay. City High. Woo. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. God Brian bless Toby, him. Claudette Ortiz, and the other guy. Sorry, don't really know who he is. But, you know, God bless you. Wherever you are, Claudette. Yeah. And I think Mm. they actually uh, earned a Grammy nod for that song, too. I think so, too. Yeah. Yeah. The other guy was Robbie Hardlow. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's great. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Great soundtrack. Great movie. Um, Okay. So give us your. Give us your grade. Does after you reassessed, what you got? Make it to A. <clears throat> yeah, uh, I'm gonna go with with the A two. Again, like I said at the top, I don't know why this isn't higher on like Eddie Murphy's list of greatest movies. Like we no really, we act like <laughs> this wasn't one of his best joints ever, and it, it really was. No. No, really. It's Eddie has such a a, a variety of work, right? Like mm-hmm. Eddie can give you comedy, he can give you dramedy, he can give you drama. Um, but this is one of those movies that, like you said, I don't know why it doesn't rise to the top more. I personally think of when I think of Eddie Murphy, I will think of life before I think of Boomerang. That's just me. Mm-hmm. So, if you did not watch it with us, or please watch mm-hmm. it again and tell us what you think. Yeah, thank you for hanging out with us. This has been great. Thank you, Brittany. Thank you. This is always good to have a conversation with you. You're of one of the people I like talking to. Look at that! Y'all got it. We got it on tape. We got it on tape. <laughs> yeah. Never <laughs> said I didn't. Never said cannot take it back. Can't take, take it back. back. No, likewise. This was a great conversation. I'm glad we did this movie. Yes, me too. Um, Okay, so that's it. Okay. See you later. Bye. Hey, we hope you enjoyed the latest episode of the Black Running Back podcast. It was executive produced by Brie Color and myself, Patrick Schaefer. Also, production done by Because. We'll see you next week for another great episode. Bye.